up your uh, Bibles with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, I'm sorry, Zechariah 14. I don't even know where Luke came from. Luke is nowhere in my notes. Look at Zechariah chapter 14, concluding the series of Zechariah, all 14 chapters. You've heard it read in this chapel. You've heard it commented on. Uh, today, the message is holy to the Lord, and it actually comes in the uh, the last verses there. Um, so you got to get all the way to verse 20 to find it. But today's message is holy to the Lord. Let's start in Zechariah 14, verse 1. These are a lot of verses. I'm just going to quickly read them. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. What I'm going to do is just comment as I go along so that I don't have to go back because it's such a long passage. By the time I get to verse 21, you're going to forget what verse 1 was about, okay, just to help you out. So right here we see the continuation of the day of the Lord, except right here we see some trouble going on. We see that during this time half of the city goes into exile and the other half will not be taken, of the, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. And so if we uh, understand this to be the day of the Lord when the battle of Armageddon is taking place, why do half of the people go into exile? So now we have a couple options to this what seems to be confusing passage in the middle of Zechariah. A, that in prophecy sometimes it can go from one event to another very quickly. This could be the prophecy of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And then starting in verse 3 onward is the battle of Armageddon. So what Zechariah could be doing is showing that there's going to be a time of trouble before this time of deliverance. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Because remember last week we talked about here comes the armies, a hundred million man army against Israel, and then God saves them. Jesus saves them at the last minute. Well, here you see now half of them are going into exile. It's like, whoa, what's going on? I thought we were getting saved. Well, one way to look at this is now he's talking about, because this is Zechariah's time, hundreds of years before Jesus, it's saying before all this will happen, you will be ransacked, half of you left in the city, half of you brought into exile, and that happening in 70 A.D., and then moving on to verse 3, he's talking about then Jesus will come when they try to destroy you, you will be saved. And so that kind of gives the idea that what Rome tried to do, uh, the Antichrist will try to do again, but this time God will save them. That's the first option. The second option is, is that somewhere in the timeline before the battle of Armageddon, the Jews start getting dispensed from their land, that they get captured, and this would be in our time. So like right now, something happens in Jerusalem, and half of them go into exile. Now, to me, I don't think that that would make sense, because it, it, it doesn't mention that um, this is only for a certain time period. It says that the houses are ransacked and the women raped. And so I don't see this really happening in this day and age, though it possibly could. Like on the Gaza Strip, they, uh, they, in, the Muslim nations could take back half of it, something that we wouldn't know. And then it would be a perfect fulfillment of prophecy. But I just don't think it's that, that, that that's going to fit the best option because it says half of them will go into exile. And so then when they right now who live there, they would go into exile, then they would have to come back for this other prophecy to be fulfilled. So in my mind, I think option one is the best, where it talks about this going forward from Zechariah's time, there being a destruction of Jerusalem, there being a brought into exile, but then they're coming to deliverance. That's what I believe, and so that's what I think fits best here. Now, verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. You see how from 1 to 2 it says, you're going into exile, half of you. And then the next verse it says, but he's going to fight for you guys. Now, to me, that difference is between 70 A.D. to the Battle of Armageddon. That's like what we could call a gap theory right there, you know, in one sense, a gap. It's like, well, okay, we get sent into exile, half of our cities destroyed, 70 A.D. We're waiting for you, Lord. When is verse 3 coming? It that's what I think is going on there, okay? Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, 
and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west. See, here's a prophecy about Jesus. Isn't this wonderful? Wow, you just got to see this right here. Then the Lord will go out, and on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Show any Jehovah Witness this and ask them whose feet is on the Mount of Olives. Whose feet is that? And then you go back to last week's lesson. It is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. There is no way around it. Jesus is not the Father. As we were talking to some Jehovah Witnesses, keep thinking we as Trinitarians are saying, we are not saying Jesus is the Father, and we're not saying he's the Holy Ghost. We're saying Jesus is Yahweh, the Father is Yahweh, the Holy Spirit is Yahweh, and there's not three Yahwehs, there's just one Yahweh. Amen? So wonderful. You see this prophecy, if you always want to know where it was at. Actually, I forgot where it was at, so when I was reading this morning, it was like, wow, there's where it's at. He stands on the Mount of Olives. There he is. How many didn't know where this was? If I would have asked you, come on, be honest, if I would have said to you this morning before you read Zechariah, how many can show me where Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives? How many would not have known where it was found in the Bible? Let's be honest. Okay, I'm not alone. If you're not seeing the video, everybody's hand went up. Now, keep reading. With half of the mountain moving north and half moving south, you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Oh, Lord, again. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Who is riding on the horse, my friends, in Revelation? Jesus, who's the one that has the armies of heaven with him? Jesus, please, please show this to anybody that doesn't believe Jesus is Yahweh from the Old Testament. Some of you know Sam Shimon. He went with us to speak to the Muslims. He did a whole debate on someone, is Jesus prophesied in the Trinity in the Old Testament? And he didn't use any New Testament scriptures. And you can see so many of them. You know, the Bible says their eyes were blinded. Because they couldn't see it clearly for some. And then others, it was waiting to be revealed. But when you go back, it's like, aha, it was always there. The Christians weren't just making up stories to follow Jesus. It would have been easier for them just to say Jesus was a rabbi. And there's only one God, the Father, only one person. But they were not making up stories. They were looking back on the scriptures going, oh, he is the I am. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, that's the same name that Jehovah gave Moses. Oh, he is the Yahweh. Oh, in the beginning was the word he was always there he was the one that met with abraham okay i get it now in the plains of mamre here he is in zachariah so as john the revelator is writing all of this what is he alluding to he's alluding alluding to everything that was already prophesied in zachariah and he's saying when i saw the vision it's jesus doing all of this jesus is riding the white horse jesus is coming to conquer the nations jesus is standing on the mount of olives Verse 6, on that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be no light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in the summit and in winter. Now, this is the beginning of the millennial reign. And it talks about how the earth is going to be without this nighttime or daytime. And we know this to be because the Lord is there and his presence is the light. Now, this could be alluding to the creation of the new heavens and new earth, which comes after uh, the millennial reign. But I think this is during the millennial reign and that this is just how the weather is going to be. The pattern won't, you can't describe what the millennial reign, that thousand years when Jesus is on the earth, when he's ruling the nation, the weather pattern, the light in the sky, the way everything is going to look, it's going to be unique. It'll be like nothing you've ever seen. There'll just be total tranquility and peace upon this earth. And then it says that this river flows out, that on that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem. We believe this to be the river of the Holy Spirit in the new uh, earth and new world after the thousand-year reign. But during the thousand-year reign, this may be a literal river and it have miraculous powers to it. And something that kind of alludes to that is like the pool of Siloam when they put people in it, when the waters were stirred. And so, honestly, this may be a river that has supernatural power involved in it. And you won't have to buy it for five ninety-nine from a televangelist, okay? It will just be flowing and you can go clean in it and you can get rid of, you can exfoliate your skin and have clean skin and all of that. Whatever it does, on that day, the living water will flow. So it's living water, it's good water, and it's flowing from Jerusalem. Now look at verse 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord in his name, the only name. 
Praise God. Third time. Your third reference to Jesus being Yahweh right here. That's why when you talk to Jehovah Witnesses, you have to ask them, how many lords are there? They have to admit there's two. There's the Yahweh Lord, and then there's the Lord Messiah. I'm telling you, I heard this whole debate among people who believe this way. They have to believe in two lords. Then you have to ask, who are the, who, how many kings are there? There's two kings. There's the great king, the father, and then there's the lesser king, the son. My friends, this scripture totally disproves that. There is only one Lord. That means any times Jesus is called Lord, it doesn't mean landlord. It doesn't mean like boss, because that would literally mean there's two lords. There is only one Lord, Master, God of Israel, Yahweh. There's only one, and there is only one king. It's not like the father's a king, and then he makes himself a king, his son a king, and there's only one kingdom. No, there is only one king, one person ruling, excuse me, and it is Jesus. Amen? And he rules in the name of his father, but he is the king, and he bears the name Yahweh. There's no other name for God except the Tetragrammaton, yo hey vahe this God, the name of God in the Old Testament. That is his name. Jesus is Yahweh. He is God of all creation. Uh, verse 10, the whole land from Gibeah to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like Arabah, uh, Arabah rather, but Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the Benjamin gate to the side of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hinnom to the royal wine press, it will be inhabited never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. Nancy, will you kick down the air conditioning? Make it cooler by two degrees, please. Right here, prophetic people have a whole lot of ideas to what's going on here with the gates. I don't have time to get into the gates. I'm not really gifted in prophetic teaching. So if you want to find some good prophetic teaching, like look up Perry Stone. Uh, he's an awesome prophetic teacher. Glenn Badonsky, Glenn Boom Boom Badonsky is influenced by Perry Stone. And they'll, I don't know if he talks about this exact passage, but there's so many things that they can talk about about these gates and the significance of them. Basically, I just like the last part, how it's summed up for me. Jerusalem will be secure. Amen. The bottom line is God will be in his city. The gates will be secure. Think of a gate as an entrance to the city. These will be secure. But all of these things have prophetic semblance. And uh, once again, when we, when we interpret things that the Bible doesn't interpret, you always need to be, a care, be careful. Instead of saying this is the truth, you just need to say this is how I perceive it to be the truth. Because remember, there's no interpretation to what these gates are. And this is very similar to what you see in Revelation with the measuring rod, measuring from the temple outward. In Ezekiel, there's these measuring rods. You'll kind of see that the prophetic people, they tie all this together. But you have to understand, the Bible doesn't say this is what the gate is. Just be very careful on those interpretations. Amen? Okay, verse 12. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Okay, so in the millennial reign, now... If anybody doesn't want to be on Jerusalem's side, they will be struck with this curse. Here's what's going to happen to these nations. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another, and they will attack each other. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. Okay, so watch this. It's called a plague. Now think about this. And it strikes the nations that come against Jerusalem. It's a plague. It strikes the nations that come against Jerusalem. I said it's after the millennial reign. I meant the battle of Armageddon here. Please forgive me. So the battle of Armageddon. These nations are attacking the people of Israel, and this is the plague that happens to them. Their flesh rots while they are still standing on their feet, and their tongues rot in their mouths. Everyone look up here, please. What do you think has the power to do that? Only nuclear warfare has the power to do that. Think of that. She knew that because I've told her that before. Think of that. This is the prediction of nuclear warfare. Now, there are two different ways you can look at this plague. The first way is, is that God allows Israel to set off a nuclear bomb on his way down. So on his way down, God says, set that joker off and 
This bomb goes off, and watch. Before people fall to the ground, their eyes are rotting and their tongue is rotting. So you're talking like immense heat. You're talking like their flesh, their eyes, and their tongue is melting before their bones hit the ground. And this is like what happens after the nuclear explosion. And this happens for miles away. And so, number one, this could be taken as God himself telling the people, set this thing off as he's coming down. The second way to look at it could be when God comes to the earth, it's like a nuclear bomb going off. (laughs) So whatever way you want to take it, there is going to be some trouble for those who have messed with Israel. So imagine that. If this is not literally nuclear warfare, it describes to a T nuclear warfare, but it says Jesus brings the pain like that. So just imagine he comes down, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, like, boom, and then just hear this big mushroom, mushroom cloud comes out, and this, like, <sighs> nuclear fallout, you know, for 150 miles, as the Bible says. Could you just kind of see this thing? Just he sets down on the earth, and it's just, boom, this thing goes like that. I mean, you can use your imagination here. The bottom line is, after this explosion and after this great sign and wonder, the uh, the Jews get paid. Amen. They get the wealth of the wicked. And this basically teaches, do not mess with Israel. Now go to verse 16. And here's what I was talking about before from last week. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord Almighty to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. You see, that's after the millennial reign. That's what I meant to say before. You see, here you see people are still alive that try to attack the, um, the Israelites. So this is now the millennial reign. People try to destroy Israel. It didn't work. A hundred million of them plus died. The blood was as high as a horse's head. But what about the rest of the world? What about the other billion? You know, because you're talking about plagues and all those things came first. So let's say at the least there's a half a billion left, a billion. Well, what are those people going to do? Well, now they're going to live on the earth, and they are going to worship the king and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And what is the Feast of Tabernacles? Here's my little prophetic teaching right here. What is the Feast of Tabernacles? It is the celebration of remembering when the Jews lived in tents in the wilderness And then God brought them into homes, into the promised land. So once a year, the people of Israel would spend the day in a tent. They would basically go camping, and they would remember that their forefathers used to camp in the wilderness. Everybody say the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also the Feast of Booths. Now watch what this is really showing right here. Where does the Bible say the temple of God is in the New Testament? Point to where the temple of God is right now. And then this temple goes from corruption to incorruption, to corruptible to incorruptible, right? So just how the Jews had spent time in tents, then got permanent structures, they are going to celebrate we, how we were once in the flesh of man, Adam, now are resurrected and Jesus' perfect body are upon the earth, and the people are going to come and celebrate the resurrection of the saints in Jerusalem. Put that together and think about it. Think about it. That is, there, there are two feasts that have uh, yet to be fulfilled. All the other Jewish feasts have been fulfilled. The Day of Atonement, the, uh, a sacrifice, the Passover has been fulfilled. Uh, Pentecost has been fulfilled. There's only two that have not been fulfilled. That is the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Trumpets is when Jesus comes down and judges the world. All those trumpets are sounding. There is the fulfillment. And then what is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles? It is the resurrection, the resurrection of all the saints, right? So now when the people come and celebrate the resurrection, they are seeing the sons of God in all of their glory, all the glory of God among them, and they are rejoicing with us that God has redeemed his people. And that is the hope for their salvation when they die is that they get resurrected along with us and then celebrate all of eternity with God upon the new heaven and new earth. Does that make sense to y'all? Because otherwise it would make no sense. What are you celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles for? 
Why are we remembering the days of Israel? You've got to understand, this is after Armageddon. This is after the time of Christ. There's no point in spending the night in a tent. We are that tent. We have been transformed. That's the fulfillment of that. Study that out when you have some time. Verse 17. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, then they will have no rain. Look at that. So God is like, look, if you're not going to worship me now, you're going to feel the curse right now. So like if China doesn't want to worship God anymore, they're going to be in a drought. If people over here in America don't want to worship God, they're going to be in a drought. The only way you can have a blessing and a prosperity upon this millennial reign with Christ is if you go and worship him. It says, if any of the people of the earth do not go up to worship the Lord, the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do, no, do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what is that plague? Does this go back to that nuclear bomb thing going off? So it could be God himself. <laughs> may nuke nations and people on this earth during the millennial reign who don't worship him. That's the very extreme because the only other time plague is used is in the verses prior. And the type of plague we're talking about is that their flesh rots while they're standing on their feet. What produces enough heat to have your flesh rot while you're still standing? Only nuclear warfare can do that. And then it goes over here and says he'll inflict them with the plague. Now, you might say, well, the Egyptians didn't get that plague. So the one other explanation would be that there will be the plagues of the Egyptians brought to these people who do not worship the Lord. But that would only make sense if it said plagues, plural. But it doesn't say plagues. So it only says plagues, singular. And so, therefore, I think the plague is this nuclear warfare that happens in the prior verses. And he compares it to the Egyptians because they had plagues, plural. But now there will only be one plague, and that is nuclear warfare upon those who do not worship the Lord. How many are going to worship the Lord in that day? Amen. Verse 20. On that day... Holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. So here we see that holy to the Lord is what they put on the tabernacle. Go to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28 talks about what they would put rather on the um, the priests, but they would sanctify, make holy all of the objects used in the temple worship. Exodus chapter 28, verse 36. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal holy to the Lord, fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Now you see that every vessel has holy to the Lord written on it. Now, what do I believe these vessels are symbolic of? I believe they're symbolic of people's lives. Go to 1 Corinthians. Or rather, go to um, Timothy, 1 Timothy. How about 2 Timothy chapter 2? That's the one. Verse 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Holy to the Lord is the, t- the title of today's message. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from his wickedness. Here's the seal. You're holy to the Lord. Get it? 
Come on, think about it. Here is the seal, holy to the Lord. Now look at, if you don't understand this uh, correlation between Zechariah, look at the next verses. Verse 20, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. You see, you are called to be holy to the Lord. And the example that Paul gives, correlating with Zechariah and these vessels, these pots, that something good is cooked in, the example Paul gives is that when you look in a house, you see different types of utensils and types of equipment, some for noble use and some not for noble use. And he says, you need to be the ones for noble use, holy to the Lord. Let me give you an example. The sink in your kitchen is for a noble use. But your toilet is not for a noble use. You don't want to be the toilet upon this earth. You want to be the sink. Are you getting it? You want to be the bowl that serves people food. You don't want to be the bowl that the dog eats out of. You see, think about what Paul is saying. There's two types of utensils or pieces of equipment in your house. He says that's how it's like upon this earth. And there are people that are pure, and there are people that are unpure. He said, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. And they're sealed. They're sealed. Holy to the Lord. Now keep reading in verse 22. Flee the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And that will come to their, they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 1, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. You see, God is marking out a people to be holy unto himself. What does that word holy mean? It means to be set apart. Write down these references quickly and learn about some of the times and places that God uses those terms. We, we know that we're called to be a holy people, and I want to spend time in the passage of 1 Peter, a holy nation, a chosen generation today in closing, in 1 Peter 2, 9. But listen to these times that the Bible talks about being set apart. Acts 13, 2. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You see, you are set apart to do a work for the Lord. You are holy to the Lord. The vessels in the temple were meant to do work for the Lord. On the day after uh, Armageddon, on the day God dwells among his people, all of his people are now holy unto the Lord. They are all there to serve the Lord. My friends, we are now called to do that according to Paul so that we can be blessed and honored when we do it in his presence. Do it now so that when you do it later, it is with reward and with blessing. Don't just do it because you have to then. The Bible says that some may get saved by the skin of their teeth, and then they'll spend the rest of eternity learning to serve Him. Why can't we learn that lesson now? Why can't we learn the joy of serving God now? Amen? You're set apart. Paul and Barnabas were set apart to serve the Lord. Look at Romans 1, verse 1. We talked about this in our Romans class. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a doulos of Christ Jesus, a bondservant, a slave to Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. You and I are called and set apart wholly to the Lord to preach His gospel. Think about how precious that message is. You are teaching people about heaven and hell. 
you are teaching people about their eternal destiny. How serious should you and I take that? My friends, we need to cleanse ourselves from any wickedness by the blood of Jesus so that when we preach the gospel, it's not a shame to the Lord. But you have been set apart for the gospel of God like Paul the Apostle. Look at Galatians 1.15. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased, and then He continues on with this calling, we learn here that we've been set apart from birth. We don't need to be Calvinists and believe that God damns some to hell and saves some. We To believe that God predestined those who would choose Him, God knows everything, and He knows who would choose Him. And so from the very beginning, He set you apart. From the very beginning, He knew that you would choose Him. He set you apart. Like Jeremiah, the Bible says, I knew you before your mother. In your womb, in the womb of your mother, I knew you, and I formed you to make you a prophet. You're not just stumbling upon God's calling today. You're not just stumbling upon Metro Praise or the School of Urban Missions. This is God's calling. There's no accident in your life. You have been set apart. You have been sealed by God. Hebrews 7.26 says, Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. The Bible says Jesus set the example because he walked perfect upon this earth and he was set apart from sinners. If you are to be like Jesus, what are you to be? Set apart from sinners. You cannot live like everybody else lives. You can't date like everybody else dates. That's why I wrote a book, Date Like a Christian. You can't make the the first greatest decision in your life is what God you're going to serve, you or Jesus. That's the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life is what God are you going to serve. After that, the second greatest decision is who are you going to spend the rest of your life with? How is your family going to be? Think about that. Are you going to do it like the way sinners do it? Or are you going to do it like the way God does it? And then as your career, your occupation, what you set your heart to, are you going to do it the way sinners do it or the way God did? Jesus set the example. He was set apart from sinners, and so are we. That's why Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not stand the way of the wicked, who listens to the counsel of the ungodly, or sits in the seat of the mocker. But their light is in the law of the Lord, and on the Lord do they meditate day and night. So the Bible says, Blessed is that one. Who doesn't stand where the sinners stand? Who doesn't walk where the sinners walk? Who doesn't sit where they sit? So think about your life. You're either standing, sitting, or walking in every part of your life. Laying down is a form of sitting. Running is a form of walking. You're either sitting, standing, or walking somewhere in this life, either with the godly or the ungodly. Be set apart from sinners. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. See, that Lord, there's not two lords. There's only one Lord. Set apart the person, the Son, Jesus Christ, as your Yahweh. You see, today, you must, in your heart, set apart room for Him to make Him the Lord of your life. As I've used the example before, your house is like a three-bedroom condo. And you can say to Jesus, here's just the closet. Or you can say to Jesus, here's my whole heart. Have it all. Don't just put Jesus in the part of your heart where you put your trouble. God, you just be there. But as for my family, my career, my dreams, my hopes, my ambitions, all of this I'm going to have on my own. Your heart belongs either wholly to God or wholly to yourself. Don't deceive yourself. The Bible says set apart your hearts for Christ as your Lord. Let him be the God of your life. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Are you ready for the message today? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I say that teasingly, but at the same time I mean it. Here is the, the text that I had in my heart to share with you. Here is the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but I'll use it in closing. The message will come in closing. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Does that sound like what Zechariah was prophesying? 
Come on, is that what he prophesied would happen? That people like instruments would have to, on them, holy to the Lord? This is what Peter says. You are a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. Number one, you are a chosen people. You are called by God to do a certain particular work upon this earth. The Jewish people were called to have the covenant of God. They were called to have the worship of God. They were called to have the law of God. Write that down. The covenant, the law, and the worship of God. That's why the Jews were chosen people. But now in Christ, whoever accepts Him is chosen to carry what? His covenant. His message, which is the gospel, and His worship, which is worship of spirit and in truth. What is the next thing in your Bible that it says, Dylan? After chosen people. Mine says a royal priesthood. Thank you. That's okay. But you are a chosen people. So the Jews were called to have a covenant, to have the law, and to have the worship of God. In Christ, you are called to have the new covenant, the gospel, which is the message of God, and the worship of God, which is spirit and in truth. The next thing is a royal priesthood. What did the priesthood of the Jewish people do? Number one, they made sacrifices for the sins of the people. And number two, they made intercession for God's blessing. What are you to do? You are as a priest to make sacrifice for the sins of the people that have sinned, and you are to intercede for them. You know that you and I can pray and ask God to forgive our land. Do you know that? Do you know that you and I have the power in our prayers to plead for God's mercy over a land that even if they don't repent, if we repent on behalf of that land, God will hear our prayers? I've always said this. It's not the darkness's fault that there's no light. It's the light's fault. There's no light, my friends. Darkness can only be dark. That is the nature of darkness. When you come into the room and it's dark, you don't curse the darkness. You're upset that the light switch doesn't work. And when you want to fix the situation, you don't try to chase out the darkness. You fix the light. My friends, we've been given priesthood authority upon this earth that when the body of Christ and nations repent and the Christians turn to God in the nation, God will heal their land. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. And then what's the next thing we do? We intercede. We intercede. We stand between the porch and the altar. What that talks about is the porch where everybody could come to the temple. And the altar is where only the priests could go and where the holy place was. And so like Jesus, we have one hand in glory, the other one to the gutter, and we bring them together in Jesus' name. We bring the sinfulness of man to a holy God in prayer and in intercession. In the New Testament, we are the royal priesthood. Number three, we are a holy nation. A holy nation. The Jewish people were called to be set apart holy. Remember, holy means set apart. They were called to be holy in everything they did. They were called to be holy in their diet. They were called to be holy in their morality. They were called to be holy in their government. They were called to be holy in their family. They were called to be holy, Chris, in all that they did. You are called to be holy. You are called to be holy in your morality. 
You're not to live like others. You are to be holy in your family. You are to be holy in your government. That's why when we were talking about in Romans, rebelling against the English, we established America. And some may not agree with that, but I do, and I'm glad we established America. And we did it unto God, even if there was ungodly people with us, and even if people have turned their back on God, America still is the greatest nation because it was founded upon the principles of the Bible. You are to be holy. A people belonging to God. This sounds very similar to chosen people, but the repetition speaks of another part. It says belonging to God. So you're not just chosen. I could choose a dog to be my pet and leave it out in the yard all day long, or I could let it belong in the house. You see, the Bible says not only are you his people, but you belong to him. You're precious to him. I love how at the end of the Psalms 23, it says, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. When have you ever seen a shepherd bring his sheep inside? When have you ever seen a shepherd say, Come on in, sheep, live in my house? But that's what God does for his sheep. He brings us into his chambers. He loves us. We belong to him. This belonging to God is a sentence, a phrase of embrace, of love. It's not the Islamic form of of the way God looks at us. The Islamic form of God to us says God is not your father. He's just your God. But the Bible says God is our father. He cares for us. He nurtures us. And then look at why he's called us to be his chosen people. Why did he give us a royal priesthood? Why has he called us to be a holy nation? Why does he want us to belong to him? So that we may, number one, declare the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into light. So that we may declare his praises. And number two, to receive mercy. You were once a people that did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. And number three, to live godly lives among the pagans, that those deeds that we do may glorify God. My friends, today praise God that he saved you. Praise God that he has set you and I apart. Praise him for all of his wonderful works. Praise him in the morning. Praise him in the noontime. Praise him when the sun comes up. Praise him when the sun goes down. Receive his mercy. Let God change you and transform you today. Call out on mercy, on his, on, for him for mercy and receive it. Be a walking testimony, a trophy of God's grace and mercy. Do not live in sin because you have been given mercy. And number three, accept God's command to do good works. Abstain from this world. Live as an alien. You're not from planet earth anymore. You're from planet heaven. You shouldn't live like earthlings. You should live like the children of God. Would you stand with me, please? Set apart, holy to the Lord. Lilani, would you come? Today's message, I know, is an encouraging one. But it comes with a promise from Zechariah as we conclude this book. On that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite. In the house of the Lord Almighty. The Canaanites were symbolic of the people who were unclean. The people who were rejected by God. Verse 20 says, On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells and horses and all of these utensils. Zechariah's message to the people, the whole book, can be summed up in that last phrase. There will be no Canaanite there. Because God is looking for a holy people. You and I may go through sufferings like the Jewish people of Zechariah's day did. We may see at times the promises of God seem so far away. John Wesley probably thought it was going to happen in his lifetime. I mean, you ask Paul, Paul, are you going to see Jesus come back? I'm seeing him come back. I know it. You could ask John Wesley, man, you're going to see Jesus come back. I know it. Sometimes the promises can seem so far off. Lester Sumrall thought he was going to see Jesus come back. Smith Wigglesworth thought they were going to see Jesus come back. 
What does Zechariah encourage us with? That if God's promises seem like they're taking a while to come, He has inscribed on you, holy to the Lord. He has set you apart. And just like He's watching over the nation of Israel, He is watching over you. Some people have asked, why did God leave all these prophecies for Israel? What's the importance of Israel? You know, besides the covenant, why did God develop this type of covenantal relationship with them? What's really the purpose? The nation of Israel is the physical manifestation of God's mercy. You can look at Israel and you can say, man, if it wasn't for God, they wouldn't even be here. If it wasn't for God, there would be no nation. If it wasn't for God, they wouldn't be here. And that's the message of Zechariah as they're rebuilding this temple. After they're coming out of bondage and they're saying to themselves, will God ever bless us again? Will we ever see the days of Solomon's temple? Will we ever be a strong nation again like we were in the times of David? Zechariah is telling them there's going to be a lot of stuff ahead of you there is going to be a place for you if you remain faithful to God. He will set you apart and He will prepare a place just for you. And those who typify your enemies, these types of people, are going to have nuclear bombs dropped on them. And they will not be where you are. My friends, we've been set apart. Set apart unto the Lord. I can't tell you how much that means to me today. In a day when everything seems to be just so moving so fast that we're so insignificant, that things are so insignificant. You know, technology just makes things almost like so insignificant. We used to think like writing a letter. Somebody would write a letter to you. Like they're thinking about you. Now you get these comments every day, and it's like comments almost become insignificant on Facebook. It's like it doesn't mean anything. You know, when people lived a certain time ago, you know, they would think to themselves, man, if I just had two sets of clothes, if I could just eat food today, you know, like I would be happy. And, you know, just we have all of that. It's so insignificant. It reminds me that there's a bigger purpose to life, it's God's purpose. What are you going to do when it's, all, when it's all over? When there is no more temple, when there is no more church, when there is no more building for you to find your identity in. You know, where there is no music minister that, that feels she's important to God because she does it, or some pastor who says, I'm exalted above the rest because I'm on this stage. I mean, what are we going to do on that day when it's just all about either you're with him or you're against him? Can you see the big picture here, my friends? The big picture is we belong to God. People belonging to God. When it's all said and done, and I've been rewarded for all the times I've preached, you know what Jesus is going to say? You belong to me. He's not going to want to talk just about all the things that I did. He's just going to say, you're mine. You belong to me. Think about Adam and Eve from the very beginning. No matter what they would do, they they still belonged to God. They were gods. Whether Adam named a thousand animals that day or whether he named ten thousand animals, he belonged to God. His whole purpose for there was he was holy to the Lord. My friends, sometimes we go through life and we feel that we're insignificant because we don't trust that we belong to God. Why are you here right now? Because you belong to God. He brought you to this school for a purpose. Because you belong to Him. Why are you going to serve Him in the places you'll serve Him? Because you belong to God. And when it's all over, why are you going to be on the new earth reigning with Him? Because you belong to God. My encouragement to each and every one of you today is... Stop looking at it from your perspective. Stop looking at ministry or this Christian life like it's somehow you're that stepchild and here you have this 
stepfather that doesn't love you and he only comes to your football games when you're in the state championship or something and if you don't do good, he doesn't love you. If you do good, he loves you. This is not our God. If you didn't pray two hours today, you still belong to God. If no one came to the Easter service yesterday, if it was a flop, the whole idea, it didn't work. The Easter service was just this many people right here. I belong to God. It doesn't matter if you lose everything in life. You belong to God. Can we focus on that? Can we focus on that, friends? Get that in your heart today. That's what he was saying to Zachariah and the people. You're significant. You matter. Even though you don't have this temple anymore, you still matter. Even though you don't have this army anymore, you still matter. Even though you're getting pimped by the rest of the nation, they don't even, Babylon doesn't care about you, you still matter. You're mine. There are times in life when you and I will feel because of what we do or we don't do, we don't matter to God. There'll be times in the ministry where you'll show up to church and there'll be four people there or a thousand people, but something in your heart will say, man, today didn't matter. I just went through the motions. Come on. You've been there. You've showed up at the adopt-a-block. Maybe there's only two kids there. You think to yourself, man, maybe I can just get this over with. You know, I'm just going to do my thing real quick. Tell them about Jesus. Hand out a couple flowers. And you don't think it matters. Yes, it does matter. You belong to God. You belong to God. You might be going something, going through something in your life right now. And you might say, you know what? This thing is so small, I don't think God cares about it. Maybe like last night, you guys doing your paper. Uh, you know, the little thing for Romans. I saw some did it late. And and you're asking God for help and you feel like a failure because you just can't get the things right. You can't get on time. For some reason, school is kicking your butt. Let me tell you something. You belong to God. You matter. He sealed you. I was riding my bike the other day and I was thinking to myself if I would get any tattoo. I'm thinking I'm getting real close. I might show up one day with it. Like it's getting close, man. Like I had a real deep thought about this. I would want it in Hebrew. God is jealous for me. On my arm, like a seal. Because it says a seal upon my arm. In this book of Song of Solomons. And I wanted to say in Hebrew, God is jealous for me. I am sealed by him. And maybe put right under it in English, holy to the Lord. Because I am sealed. You are sealed. God is jealous for you. Think about this before we go. Think of the most precious thing that belongs to you. Think of it. Your child. Your friendship. Something that you can put your hands on right now. Obviously, it's our children, Nancy and I. For you, maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's just something that your parent left you or something, a memento. Think about this. How would you feel if somebody messed with that? Come on. How would you feel if somebody messed with that? How would you feel, Berto, if somebody messed with Griselda? How would you feel about that? How would you feel, Adam, if somebody messed with your sister? Adolfo, somebody messed with your brother. Come on. He said, you are people belonging to God. That's how he feels about Sue Ellen. That's how he feels about Lauren. That's how he feels about Josh. He says, he belongs to me. I set him apart. I put a seal on him. Holy to the Lord. Can we encourage each other with that this week and for the rest of our lives? Can we remember the message of Zechariah? Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. And the ones who don't want it, they're not there. 
My friends, I'm not here to put other people down, but I'm just being honest with you. Those who don't want God one day will get their wish forever. They won't have Him. Okay? He's not going to force them to be with Him. Those who feel uncomfortable worshiping Jesus, He's not going to force them. They won't be there. But you are. I am. And does that matter to you? It matters to me. I belong to God. Just close your eyes and just say that. I belong to God. Come on, just close your eyes and just say it again. I belong to God. Now just make it personal. I belong to you, Jesus. Holy to the Lord. You might be going through something thinking to yourself, Man, how can God be letting this happen? He's not letting anything happen, my friends. If you're going through a hardship and a tragedy right now, God is interceding on your behalf. God is working His power through the wickedness of this world. It's not His fault that there's wickedness in this world, but He works through it, my friends. If you could see heaven right now, a picture of heaven, you would see Jesus interceding for you and I. You would see Him praying and interceding. The Bible says the high priest, Jesus, is there making intercession for us. Why? Because you belong to Him. John chapter 6, Jesus said, Whoever the Father gives me, I will never turn aside and I will not lose any of them. That's why the Bible says when you call, He answers. That's why when the Bible says when you cry a tear, He bottles it up and He saves it. He remembers it. Every tear you've ever cried, He's kept in a bottle of remembrance. He's interceding for us because we belong to Him. We belong to God. Right now, if you're going through anything, no matter how small it may seem, you might be having some hiccups right now in school and you're just saying, I just can't get it. I just can't get it. Come on. Call upon God today to help you. You belong to Him. Some of you may not be going through a struggle in your personal walk, but in your ministry you may be dealing with disappointments. You may see disciples come and go. You may see the crowds come and go. And sometimes you think because people reject you, they're rejecting that God rejects you. That because no one came to the service, then that means God didn't come to the service. Because no one got saved that day, that God doesn't like you. Listen to me. God says you belong to me. I can't tell you how many times I've felt that. That's why I know I'm ministering to some of you here today. I can't tell you how many times I've gone out witnessing and when they reject me, I would go back and say, God, I think you're rejecting me too because, you know, no one listened to me. That is a lie, my friends. Anytime you who are working in the ministry do something in His name, the Bible, listen to what the Bible says. If you give a cup of water in His name, you get a prophet's reward. Look at what the Bible says. Even the smallest acts. The Bible said, David, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Opening the door in the church. Cleaning the church. Giving water in the church. Preaching in the church. Any act of service in Jesus' name is so wonderful in His kingdom. Do not judge yourself on ministry today. Do not let your relationship with God be affected by ministry. You belong to God. Whether you ever preach to a thousand, whether you ever do it, it doesn't matter. Adolfo told me yesterday, someone gave their testimony to a thousand people. I know it wasn't his intent, 
to, to sound braggadocious, but it's almost like, why well, preach to a thousand? My friends, I've preached to three thousand, and I felt no more God than when I preached to three. My friends, crowds mean nothing. Just because there's a pastor today, he saw 922 souls saved. That does not mean our ten were any less in God's eyes. You belong to God. Some of you are going through personal issues, some through ministry. And some today you just need to be affirmed of that, that you belong to God. Be encouraged today. I'm going to give you a few moments just to pray and seek the Lord. And just tell Him how much you love Him right now. Thank you, Lord.
Zechariah means Jehovah remembers. He remembers. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forgot about what you're going through today. He hasn't forgotten about the promises He's made you. He hasn't forgotten the promises He made to your ministry, to the church. He hasn't forgotten the promise He made to your family, to this community. Zachariah, the Lord remembers. He has not forgotten about you. You belong to Him today. Come on, just profess that back to the Lord. I know you have remembered me, oh God. You remember me, God. You have not forgotten about me, Lord. You have not forgotten.